Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Woo, okay. Uh, we have some super fun stuff. We actually, we were talking about this just before we started. We have way too much great stuff this week. Oh, we have all the links. It's, and we've had all the links for the past few weeks. <laughs> I know. We've just we've just had so many cool things. I mean, we we were also talking about how we've been putting more things in the newsletter and only having so much time to talk about some of the best ones, which I think is kind of cool. I think it's all good stuff. And I've also noticed recently when we're gathering links, the kind of breadth of how far our links are ranging is very wide. Like, yes, we have type news, but there's just kind of like all sorts of grounds we're covering in the world of letter forms as of late. And that's going to be especially prevalent in this week's newsletter. But um, we're hoping everyone likes nice variety out there. I think so. It seems like it. You know, I mean, we're all designers and I think all, you know, interested in different creative outlets, sometimes type design, sometimes UI design, sometimes, uh, you know, crazy stuff that isn't either of those things. Yeah, I feel like we've had a lot of type design stuff out there lately. And who knows if that's just because of the growing accessibility to type design, which I'm hoping is the mm-hmm. reason why I'm seeing so much more stuff out there. But I think like consistently for many weeks now, Micah, like we've had we links about like very specific type design news. New links. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have some great ones this week, too. Okay. So what are some of the cool ones that we were... What are we starting with today? Well, I was very enthusiastic uh, about my fonts um, article in their my fonts blog, the Foundry. It's called Common Errors in Type Design. Yes. Okay. And this was uh, shared by Mirko this week, right? He found this yeah. awesome, this awesome find. I told Mirko, thank you so, so much. I can't wait to talk about it on the newsletter. I have wonderful notes about this whole article. That's how excited I was. <laughs> he's he's had a couple good things lately. I love that he's uh, getting more on board. We have been promising to interview him just so that everybody knows that he's not just some wizard behind the curtains. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so common errors in type design um, from my fonts Foundry blog. I I really like this. I guess partially because you know, with with the class that we have been doing with Thomas, um, mm-hmm. we we've been like trying to pull out some super useful, memorable patterns of just like tricks that you need to know as you are drawing stuff. Because drawing is the hardest part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this has some good, like it it pulls out some of those tricks and has good visuals for the difference between right and wrong ways of doing stuff. Totally. Like, really straightforward stuff. They're actually probably all pencil sketches, which is kind of just, like, nice to see. (laughs) Um, But I really thought this was important because I think it answers the age-old question in digital type, which is how do you discern good and bad type? And I feel like that question is just becoming more relevant. There's more open source fonts out there. there's a lot more access to fonts than we've ever had before. And I think it's important to know when a font is not worth your time um, and why it's not worth your time. Hmm. And when a free font maybe is really high quality and how you can explain to someone um, why you're using a certain typeface. And I think this whole article outlines the best practices for kind of discerning what kind of type you're using as a designer. Um, And I think there's lots of interesting 
information about type design in here, but I think there's also a lot of type users and typographers um, on how to actually select the type they're using and um, how to kind of understand those little nitty gritty details that will make their type projects look from bad to good pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just to, like point out a few things, if anyone's kind of curious about the article and hasn't taken a look at it yet, um, there's all sorts of discerning things like a resource telling you how what's the minimum character set a font should have, which sounds really basic. But um, my font as a foundry actually like makes their designers um, design a certain amount of characters before they will publish a font. Mm which I didn't know that. And it, they have a really interesting guide. It's a PDF guide to all the minimum characters. And if you want to expand to multiple languages, like they'll give you a starting point for there. So it's really helpful for type designers, but also for type users. If you know you're having a more like um, internationally based uh, content that you're typesetting, like you don't want a typeface with only the basic characters. Like that is something that will help you discern good and bad type. Unless we're talking about... Uh open source type where people can contribute. That is true. I've heard uh, both sides of this argument and I've actually gotten into this yes. argument before too of, you know, okay. like how can you say that it is high quality if uh if a character set is incomplete? Totally. Uh, and in in the world of you know, of of us trying to introduce the idea of open source uh uh, you know, I mean, I guess I I sometimes feel like it is okay to release something that is started with the hopes that people will help finish it. That's a really nice sentiment. <laughs> I mean, it obviously does make it uh, not usable in some scenarios. And that's certainly feedback mm -hmm. that, that we have gotten on a few of our fonts, too. Mm -hmm. But then also but we've gotten pull requests from people who... Uh, you know, saw that and were like, I'm going to work on this. What a fun project. Yeah, which is like awesome and so collaborative and kind of going back to what we were talking about last week on the podcast, just about malleability in open type hmm. um, bonds. And that's just an example of that, which is kind of nice to see. Bit of a tangent, but still fun to point out. Still interesting. Um, for the people that are designing type, they actually have this wonderful list of typical errors that... Um, designers have made when they're trying to design quote unquote foreign glyphs and they'll go through all these errors of random things like the Icelandic thorn symbol and when the descenders are descenders and when they kind of disappear when it's uppercase what to do mm. for dotless I that it shouldn't just be look like the figure one it should look like an I without a dot kind of basic stuff um, but things that are often forgotten and yeah. Things that I found really interesting as someone that has drawn characters that I've never actually used before in my kind of daily type use. Oh, that's an interesting point. That yeah. type designers often have to draw characters that they themselves don't really use. I did that for the first time a couple months ago, and it was a very, it made me very just conscious of how lucky I am that, you know, I'm not, my name's not constantly misspelled for random reasons because people just don't understand the actual shape of a letter. Mm. Um, but there's so many interesting cases of that. And I'm, I'm sure we have like a lot of international readers and listeners that have this frustration. Yeah, for sure. And this sure. resource will help people kind of create a universal knowledge about these characters they're not familiar with, which I thought was really nice. Yeah, this is a cool resource. 
Yeah, and... I talked a lot about that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, well, yeah, no, me too. Um, so the the next one is is kind of related, and I was actually really excited because uh, a student last night uh, shared this resource um, kind of in response to another student's question, which was kind of cool. Like we were walking through. Uh, like last night we were drawing two story A's and we were drawing E's and two story G's and S's, like all the hard letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes those, those curves can be kind of difficult to wrap your head around the first few yeah. times that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so someone was asking a question about that. And uh, then Casey Hargreaves, I think that's how you pronounce it, at least it's Casey, mm-hmm. posted this awesome link for for Aaron uh, of the rule of thirds of smooth Bezier curves. And it was oh. a thing that Thomas was kind of talking about, too. And so this link that we have here is um, a video. Uh, mm-hmm. And honestly, like... It's tough because skimming the article, you like see the result of the thing that he's talking about in the video, but you really have to watch the video, I think, to like understand how to actually apply this practically yourself. Yeah. But it's, it's this like fairly simple mental model of, uh, how far you should pull a handle on a Bezier curve in order to make Mm -hmm. a smooth curve without kinks and like, how to, how far to make that go while interacting with other curves. Yeah, there's a lot of good diagrams on here, too, that I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy. Yeah, I think once you watch the video, the diagrams make sense what it means. And if you don't watch the video, you're kind of just like, these are diagrams of nice-looking ovals. I don't get it. That's true. That's but, true. But if it's you also, watch it and you kind of, like, get the one trick that is in that, you know, it's like a nine-minute video or something. Like, it's a tiny very precise video and it's super also fun too a good reminder to like all designers on bezier curve best practices that's true i feel like sometimes you forget also a reason i might forget is because of this amazing new pen tool that came out with adobe photoshop 2018 oh shoot um, i don't even know about that Edge yeah me. what happened I read about this tool at the end of last year, I think during the keynote, and I was like, I'm too lazy to download 2018 on my computer. Guess I'll figure that out when I get there. <laughs> so when I moved jobs last month, all the computers have Adobe Creative Cloud 2018, and it's just been a blast. Um, just using variable fonts, using color fonts. But uh, the big thing is there's this new tool in Photoshop called the Curvature Tool, and it's basically... I don't know. The best way to describe it is if your pen tool had artificial intelligence. <laughs> what? It's kind of, it's really lovely. So you kind of just start making a shape, but you do, it's not a click and drag handle system. It's just points. And wherever you click, the um, software estimates what your curve looks like. And it's mostly spot on. And then when you're done, when things are nearly there, you just kind of do small adjustments to the points and there's no handles involved, but it's basically a pen tool without handles. That sounds like black magic to me. It is kind of like black magic. Um, <laughs> I need to see I this. Just... I mean, I'm I'm Googling yeah. now and watching some GIFs and I'm like, how does this really work? Right? I can't. 
I've just been using it for a couple days, um, just masking some stuff out at work, but I'm very impressed and got to say, like, way to go. You found a new way to experience Bezier's. Huh. This is neat. Yeah, it's like basically if the magic wand tool was not so tragic, was not the tragic (laughs) wand tool, (laughs) (laughs) and combined with your pen tool. (laughs) But, um... Super nerdy side note. Yeah, that's so cool. That's cool. I didn't even know about that. Um, um so next next up. That well, so you know, that's a that's just a fun resource. We have like kind of two cool drawing resources, one particularly about type design, one more about Bezier curves. And yes. then next our next link is from my favorite lecture at Typographics 2017. For those that don't know, Typographics is a super nerdy type conference that happens in New York every year in the summer. And you went last year, right? I did go. I went on a scholarship from Society of Scribes, the calligraphy guild I'm part of. Cool. Um, I highly suggest it for anyone that's interested in type. Um, I learned so much. Got to hear so many amazing people speak. Got to meet new people. Um, it's really an amazing experience. And this was one of the favorite, my favorite lectures. Luckily, Typographics actually publishes their lectures um, online for everyone to see about like half a year after the event happens. So I highly suggest everyone to go on their YouTube channel and listen to the talks that people paid like hundreds of dollars to actually see live. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So I'll get into it. Um, The talk is called Handwriting, Our Personal Typography with Agnieszka Gasparska. And she has an amazing lecture about kind of how handwriting is really our personal expression of typography and how most of the time it's really just a means of personal communication. Like our handwriting isn't for anyone else to see and admire. It's kind of like how we communicate letter forms um, from ourselves and back to ourselves. Mm Because even if you think about it this way, Micah, like I have no idea what your handwriting looks like. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Right? And like we're friends. Yeah. I just feel like especially now, unless you're like looking over the shoulder of a coworker's like sketchbook or something, we don't know what anyone else's handwriting looks like. It's very much in and of our in and of itself. I mean, like when was the last time you hand wrote a letter and sent it to someone on on any kind of basis? Like last month. Really? Wait, do you do that all the time? Well, I send thank you notes to my relatives. They'll give me Christmas gifts. Wow. That, I mean, that's awesome. That's super <laughs> polite and very thoughtful of you. I'm also very into handwriting things. I'm into calligraphy in that sort of world. So. I mean, sure. Would you say then, like, I, I mean, obviously we've established that as friends, we don't know what each other's hand, like, handwriting looks like. But w- would your family know what your handwriting looks like? Um. Yes, but it has evolved throughout time. But yes. Does your family know? Heck no. No way. Really? I, I mean... I, I don't want it to sound like I don't thank my family for things. I no. do. I just don't. I just don't write notes with my hand. But see, like fifty years ago, if anyone heard that, they wouldn't believe us. Uh, yeah. No, that's a great point. That's a really fascinating. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. So in this video, she kind of like starts with the more personal 
um, touches to it. Like she talks about her dad's handwriting and her mom's handwriting. And then she later kind of talks about handwriting through history and then eventually kind of how to interpret your handwriting. So anyone interested in interpreting their handwriting, like check out this video. Um, it's really informative and kind of she talks about handwriting as the human root of typography that, you know, when we see someone's handwriting, like we can get an emotional reaction more so than if we see typography hmm. in a way. Um, and it's still like it still is trying to function as the same thing. It's just like this different variation of it. Um, I just think it's really interesting. We all learn how to write when we're kids. We don't all learn how to design type. I think this is like. <laughs> going to be a little bit more universally fascinating for anyone like in the design circle and not in the design circle um but if there's any takeaway she had this lovely quote from aristotle that like i just thought about for so long after i heard it but when writing kind of started aristotle said letters were invented so we could converse with the absent Mm. and I don't know. It's just so true. I mean, think about we're texting all the time. We're sending emails all the time. You know, they're a mode of communication for people that don't get to have one-on-one, that don't get the privilege of having verbal communication. And I mean, that's kind of constantly. Shoot, that almost makes me a little sad. Yeah. It it just like really hit a chord for me as someone that's so obsessed with type and kind of turned it in its head to a totally different way of looking at it. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that really profound? I just was really excited to share that. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. This, I mean, this the, makes me super fascinated to watch this talk. I really hope you do because I think it'll make you think about like our role as, you know, designers and typographers and type designers in like a totally different sphere than usually like the stuffy, like variable fonts, UI, UX. It's yeah. like, whoa, we have a history and there's a reason we're doing what we're doing. And it, it just like... It brought a lot of humanity to this whole type and design world. No so, wonder this was your favorite talk. I can oh, feel yeah. it. I can feel it. <laughs> it's a very Olivia type of talk. This is great. I'm going to watch it again after we talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I just had to go in that direction for a second. But we can back out and go to the most opposite place. And that would be seven practical tips for cheating <laughs> at design. Because we were just bad-mouthing As UI we were just bad-mouthing UI UX, which I think is a wonderful thing. And just a manifestation of handwriting, I guess, like manifested in a lot of different ways. Sure. Um, why don't you talk about this article? Um, okay. So I was, I was excited about this article because um, I found it via Twitter, of course. Always Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this guy named Steve Schroger. Mm-hmm. Uh, who maybe is famous? I I think so. Um, he's a designer and has made a bunch of icons and whatnot, and mm-hmm. uh, is frequently posting these tiny little tips. Mm-hmm. Um, it, with with just it's it's always an illustration that is kind of marked up with notes that are mm-hmm. always very precise of like one little UI tip that will just inch you further as a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love the inching part of that, you know, where it's, it's not like this is, this is a huge tutorial on how to be a designer. It's like, Hey, if mm-hmm. you do this one thing, it might help a little bit. They're like very much like micro tips. Yeah. Micro, and, but and they're very practical. Like, yeah. uh, you know, instead of using black, 
you could manipulate the color of your text in certain scenarios to uh, add just a tiny bit of subtle hierarchy by making it 10% more gray. No, those nuances really do make a difference. They really do. When I was an early designer and I kind of figured that out early on, people would be like a little bit more impressed with my work. Just like, I was like, oh, I just changed the color of the type. Type doesn't have to be black. Like, I mean, this was not when I was a professional designer. This was when I I was a student. And then I remember I learned that trick and kind of tricked people. Like this article says, cheats, cheating your way into design. Right. You know, it's, I I, I love, I love those cheat codes. Oh, me too. I I actually really enjoyed reading this, even though I don't do UI. I mean, it's just all, it's very typographically based. And And, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is marketed as UI, but really it is graphic design. Like, you know, you could use this if you are making a landing page, you could use this if you're making the cover of a book. Oh, definitely. Um, that drop shadow tip I've used before. Like just in graphic design in general, that right? like don't have a drop shadow on every edge, like make it actually like attempt to do some realism in there. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was really nice, but I enjoyed this. I'm so glad you were able to share it this week. I love I love the stuff that's just like tiny little practical tips. Yeah. Um. Another thing that I thought you shared that was also super practical was understanding and getting the best web font licensing deal. Hmm. You're the licensing king. Um, <laughs> so, you know a lot more than I do. And I actually don't know anything about web fonts. So I was like, you know what? I should probably read this to get some sort of base knowledge. And it was really practical from like an outsider's perspective that yeah. has never seen this before. And, uh, you know, I mean, the the web font and, and uh, licensing book that we published through the league uh, – mm-hmm. I, it's certainly not old. A lot of the information is still super relevant and exactly the way that people work. Mm-hmm. Um, but some type foundries have, have, I think, at least adopted web fonts a little bit more. But the thing that was neat about this, or, you know, at least adopted web fonts more than when we first wrote it, it was it was sort of like the wild, wild west at the time when we first wrote mm-hmm. it. And now it's all over the place to be able to get a web font. But the thing that I thought was neat was this is one of the few times that I've seen a type foundry having some sort of like relatable, practical uh, justification for why web font licensing is so ridiculous. Yeah, no, it was really interesting. They really break it down for you. Yeah. Uh, You know, they're kind of like they have illustrations here about like the, the fact that if you install a font on a server, a server might not just be one computer. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that is part of the reasoning why they, they charge a little bit extra for uh, web fonts than if you were to install it just on your computer sometimes. And I honestly learned the difference between web font and desktop fonts. I didn't know web fonts were interpreted and rendered by the browser and installed on a server opposed to like how we just download regular fonts. I honestly just didn't know how it worked. Mm. Um, but hey, that was like a good piece of knowledge I now know the one day I may have to license a web font. Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, that's the thing with the with the web font or with the licensing book too. It's like it's it's never a thing you're excited to learn about. You're not like, "Ooh, heck yeah, I want to read all I can about font licensing. That sounds super fun." <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's very useful and once you read it eventually it will come up and you will remember 
something that you would read about it and it will be useful and and help you at the time. That's kind of like how I'm viewing this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but like I know there's going to be a time when I'm going to have to license web font whether or not it's in the near future. I'd like to know what the difference between web font and desktop font is. Like we are design like I am a designer, I'm a print designer, but you know, we got to know that stuff. Yeah, totally. So, I was so into that. Um, I'm so glad you shared. So excited to share this with everyone. Uh, last on the super nerdy uh, digital type <laughs> front, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the GitHub um, system font change. Yeah. So this was another one that Mirko shared this week that I was kind of psyched about. Um, and it it is a blog post um, about how GitHub, which we've mentioned plenty of times, whether you use it or not, uh, you know, GitHub is an online tool to uh, collaborate and share code, whether it's code that makes a font or code that makes a program or whatever. Um, and it is it is the place on the internet to do that. There's one or two competitors, but like everybody uses GitHub. Um, and so Except it's me. well, well, no, I mean everybody who is who is doing that process of sharing and collaborating code. Uh, and, and, and open sourcing. So like there's a majority of the fact that open source is so prevalent in the way we, we all work now, even in the people who aren't contributing, but using tools that rely on open source stuff Mm -hmm. is because GitHub, and this isn't even what the article is about, but it is because GitHub, uh, a was one of the first places to say like, okay, this, this, version control technology called git that like keeps track of changes over time to your code uh is great but it's hard to work on it with people let's make one central place that was like they in a sense pioneered that idea and the other thing that was really revolutionary about github uh as it came to be was that they had this crazy business model which was uh if you want your code to be private, you pay. Mm-hmm. And if you want it to be free, it's open source. That is something I knew about GitHub that I knew you were a fan of. I love that. I think that's such a genius model. Mm-hmm. And and it has helped open source become as as uh, important and used as, uh, as it is today. Mm-hmm. Because not only is there now a place to publish the thing that you want to make open source, which previously would be your website that no one would ever find, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, but it it is also just like encouraging open source. And they have all these tools around. OK, I'm, I'm just fanboying now. No, it's great. I mean, it's great to know what GitHub is, because um, to be honest, like GitHub is very known within very specific circles and very unknown um to the rest of the world which is crazy because the rest of the world relies on it and doesn't know it i think that's also amazing which right? is like why i want there to be a tutorial about like github for dummies like yeah. i you know i think that'd be great anyways the article yes sorry <laughs> uh, giant tangent just explaining what github was and and that it has nothing to do with anything other than uh, you know, it's this tool that a lot of people use all the time, like spend half their day on GitHub's website. Yeah. And this is an article about how they switched from like default web fonts, like web friendly fonts that we've all been using for 30 years mm-hmm. to system fonts, mm-hmm. uh, which has been a big thing in the last few years 
because Apple uh, came out with their own proprietary uh, system font, San Francisco, that they mm-hmm. use uh, on iOS and poured it over to the Mac a few years ago. And Microsoft mm-hmm. has Sego. I feel silly saying that, but that looks like how you would pronounce it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. It just makes me think of Legos. Um, it, it looks like Segway, but with an O instead of a U in Segway. So that's right? also confusing me. Yeah. Um, so the fact that uh, these these two giant operating systems that nearly everybody uses um, have their own custom system fonts that are new like in the last few years they decided to invest in good typography that nobody else has and use it in their system uh there has been kind of this weird trend uh, current of designers um wanting to rely on those fonts rather than custom fonts mm-hmm. and uh so this article kind of uh, i mean the, the first real section is why change And I Mm -hmm. think that's really neat. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, if you're into CSS uh, and and web stuff, it goes into how they did it. Like, you know, what what fonts do they put first and what fallbacks are there if those don't work? Um, And then, you know, some like super detailed stuff about the difference between browsers and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, for, like, everyone else that's, like, not a UI designer, it's just interesting. Think about it as a company deciding deciding to make a very purposeful decision to change their text face um, based on a lot of different reasoning. And then they kind of explain that. Yeah. Like, the why to a a seemingly simple question um, that is often overlooked. Yeah. You just, uh, there's just not a ton of articles like this that explain why companies make significant design changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same reason that I love every time we have like, uh, shoot, what's that, that font or the, the branding website that always shows like, Oh, oh. under consideration, brand news. Yeah. 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 Where, where mm-hmm. they actually like go into how they thought about changing a logo or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's like important to know and important to learn from too. If like you're anywhere near this kind of work. Yeah, so that was actually supposed to be 10 seconds, but I went on a giant tangent about how awesome GitHub is. It's okay. No one knows what GitHub is, so I'm excited (laughs) for the knowledge to be spread. Uh, So I think we have one more that we wanted to talk about, which I am confident you are excited about just by the nature of what it is. This is like my GitHub. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, of course you're excited. (laughs) Of course I'm excited, and of course you know I'm excited. (laughs) Um, so the next article is a historical collection of children's books, high resolution scans from the Baldwin Library of Historical Children's Literature. Um, yes, I used to be working in children's books and I grew an insane appreciation for the contemporary children's books, but also kind of historical, beautiful cover designs that used to go into these um, that would like make a child want to pick up a book. I mean, that's it's a really important concept, like deep down. So um, this was found on Typographer. So typograph, typograph.her is the website. <laughs> I know it's always so hard to say. Yeah. Um, and they describe this as lettering inspiration gold. And I 
clicked the link and it was just just browsing old children's book covers for a good like 20 minutes i mean just really old school stuff this is all coming from the mid 1600s up until present day um and they have like all the really old um imprints and publishers which is kind of crazy if anyone's like in publishing you'll definitely be able to appreciate it but anyone that's not in publishing like this stuff isn't dead. I go into Barnes and Noble and they have their Barnes and Noble collection where they got Jessica Hish and hired other designers like her to design these really bespoke covers mm. um, that use really old lettering style and really old ornamentation. And like they're definitely selling those books. Um, so I just I really wanted to bring these to light. Like if anyone's really interested in kind of older school lettering stuff that like blows my mind completely like i am flipping through these pages and just the the composition the detail i mean they're just really principal stuff i mean some of it's a little bit stuffy whatever but i I love to look at this and and recognize that some of these are crap yeah and that makes me feel really good yeah you know like like uh, I mean, some I'm not. I'm not trying to be negative. Like I love looking through this stuff, partially mm-hmm. too, because uh, growing up, my mother was an antique dealer. I remember you saying that. Oh yeah. My God. So like, I grew up like across from my bedroom was a bookshelf with books completely like this, all around the house, sprinkled what? as decoration. Are actual old books that she would find. And not even always read, but love the way that they looked and use them as decoration. So, like, this is bringing me back to my childhood. And, you know, you're talking about, like, uh, how beautiful some of the compositions are. And I just love looking at it and being like, you know, it's so easy to be nostalgic and be like, everything was great in 1800. And, uh, you know, I mean, that isn't true. (laughs) Like, some of these, I'm like, wow, that is a terrifying looking baby. Oh, a lot of them. <laughs> you know, I didn't go here for the terrified looking baby. <laughs> and some of these compositions are are rough. I also think okay, some of them are rough. Some of them are nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but if nothing else, just look at the titles: the, yeah. the baby's opera, um, <laughs> baby land. <laughs> like, not totally created. <laughs> I love this. The Fox's Book of Martyrs. Oh my God! What? Yeah. Ooh, the Book of Moo Cows. Ooh, actually, I think the um, title I'm going to feature on our newsletter was like from Chapters of Animals or something. Oh, Just, yeah, but some of these are, I mean, like there's some there's some book about the Boston Tea Party and the illustrations and the composition here is just flipping awesome. Yeah, yeah. Some I mean, of them it's are also really like kind of racist, which is awful. But oh yeah, be warned. There's like lots of racist and lots of sexist book covers. That was um, that was the times we've we've learned since then, or some of us have. But just look at the lettering. Just ignore everything else. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, this is a beautiful resource to just browse through and be like. I mean, it's really high resolution stuff. The yeah. type of ornamentation is kind of stuff that you don't see anymore. Mm. And like, you want to revamp a lettering project? Be the next like Louise Feely, Martina Flor, Jessica Hish. I mean, I don't. I think their inspiration wasn't too far off from these places. They're just yeah. like, really imaginative um, and kind of looking at lettering in a space that's like outside of the trends and outside of like that whole like gotta look like someone else kind of you know BS and just like kind of take it back to this world of like super earnest like hardworking like very mechanically done without any digital tools. I mean that in itself always blows my mind. Yeah. 
So I had to share. No, this is great. I'm glad you did. Um, Thanks for letting me rant about that. Thanks for letting me rant about GitHub. (laughs) I think together we work, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's uh, we might we might post a couple other random fun things that we found. Um, We're you know we're kind of trying to make sure that we keep a good balance in the newsletter of uh, stuff that you want to read and everything that we find that we think is cool. Yeah, exactly. So thanks again for tuning in to another awesome weekly typographic. Such a fun time. And we will see you all next week. See you all next week, everyone.